1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Amen. Less than a month ago, Americans invaded the U.S. Capitol, the heart of our democracy. Uh, some even called it a sacred space. Unlike 9-11, when that attack proved the enemy was outside of us, what happened in D.C. earlier this month has only heightened the deep division that exists among us in America today. Now, to be fair, you will not find a generation in American history that has not faced deep division. Ours is no exception. Even the Christian community has its fair share of division. Yes, we are united in our opposition to abortion, racism, gender fluidity, and the redefinition of marriage. But bring up the topic of systemic racism, COVID-19, masks, vaccinations. Bring up any of these topics and you will quickly realize we do not all see eye to eye. May we practice wisdom and patience and grace, yes, so much grace as we navigate these difficult days. But I want to bring up a problem that is not trending on Twitter and will not make the nightly news. Just as the heart of our democracy was attacked by people from within our own nation, so the heart of Christianity is being attacked by people from within from within the church. Our biggest threat is not angry atheists like Richard Dawkins or snarky politicians like Dianne Feinstein who criticized a judge for her dogma that lived loudly within her. Our biggest threat is from within the church, from the teachers and even church members who twist, downplay, or outright ignore the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe the gospel is humanity's only hope, then you'll agree with me that this is the real crisis of our day. Now, you've heard the passage read aloud, 1 John 2, 18 through 29. I want to make three 
observations based upon this text. First, the church is under attack. The church is under attack. Second, the church does not need to fear. The church does not need to fear. And third, the church does need to abide. The church does need to abide. All right, number one, the church is under attack. Look again at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now John is addressing a specific historical event. This is history. This is not make-believe. This is not mythology. This is something that actually happened in the first century. Verse 18, many antichrists have come. John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. Verse 19. Now, it's hard for us to hear this word antichrist without thinking about an evil end-time figure who wages a final battle against Christ and his kingdom. And that is, in fact, what we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Though Paul does not call him the Antichrist, but the man of lawlessness, well, undoubtedly, that's who he is, the Antichrist. Less biblically, when some of us hear the word Antichrist, we might think of images from bad horror movies, which you should not have watched. But John is writing about a different antichrist, about different antichrists, about false teachers who arose from within the congregation. And that's what John means when he says they went out from us, from within. They had been members of the church. So either their theology changed or they had the same theology all along, but simply could no longer keep quiet about it, whatever the reason, these antichrists decided to break away and start their own fellowship. Now, verse 22, in very general terms, tells us about the nature of their false teaching. John writes, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Notice John calls them liars. Right? They spoke about Jesus, but what they said about Jesus was untrue. It was a falsehood. And notice they didn't merely lie, but in their lying, they were seeking to persuade others to follow them. Look at verse 26. I write, things, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Right? They wanted to win people over to their way of thinking. Now, around this time, probably a few years later, a false teacher by the name of Serenthus, Serenthus, C-E-R-I-N-T-H-U-S, concluded that God did not come in the flesh that when Jesus was born, he wasn't God in the flesh. Serenthus taught instead that Jesus was just an ordinary, albeit above average, man until the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, at which time this man, Jesus, was imbued with divine power, a power that stayed with him until right before his death on the cross. So, Serenthus denied both the incarnation and, really, the, the cross. He denied that the God-man died on the cross. Now, we actually have reason to think that, that John met Serenthus. Either way, that teaching that I've just described is undoubtedly close to whatever caused this church split. Now, here's the problem. If we don't have a Jesus who is fully God and man, we do not have a Jesus who can save us. He has to be fully God and fully man from conception through eternity in order to 
live the life that we should have led. To die a death in our place to purchase us our salvation, to rise from the dead for our justification, and even now to serve presently as our advocate, standing at the right hand of God the Father. And to say Jesus is something less than this is to deny both the Father and the Son. Verse 22, you can't have one without the other. Now, I know that for a small percentage of you, singing the words, fairest Lord Jesus is strange. I know that. Who says fairest anymore? Hi, honey, you look fairest today. We don't speak like that. I get it. But you appreciate the theology of that hymn, don't you? Proclaiming with our lips that the godness of Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man. Those are uh, truths that we preserve even as we sing when our hearts resonate with the lyrics on the page and the truth within those lyrics. Back to verse 19. The false teachers left, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Notice the church did not split over the color of the carpet, the style of the music, or the length of the sermons. The church split over doctrine. We don't know exactly how this split took place, but we do know that God had a purpose in it. Right? God used this church split to clarify gospel truth. They left, verse 19, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. That it might become plain. We can, we can praise God for this church split. The false teachers, they left. Now, there are other occasions where those who cling to the gospel are the ones who have to leave, right? We can think about examples of that, perhaps even in, in our own lives, where the ones who, who stay are the ones teaching false things, and the, one who, the ones who, who leave are leaving because they're wanting to preserve or protect the truth. That wasn't the case here. Those staying were clinging to the right and true gospel, and those who left were the false teachers. But it, it's not a bad time to think about bad reasons to leave churches. We shouldn't leave churches for trivial reasons, for reasons merely of taste or of preference. But doctrinal reasons are good reasons to leave. If you need to leave because the gospel is not being protected, because the gospel is not being promoted, I think your decision is a good one. But just be sure that your actions are serving to make it plain what the gospel actually is. That's how God used this particular church split. Now, we also see that these false teachers were never truly a part of the church. John makes that quite clear. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Their, their teaching proved that they didn't really have fellowship with the church, with the other brothers and sisters, even if they were members. And even more, with their, their teaching and their lives, they proved that they didn't really, they didn't truly have fellowship with God. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So there are people who can be in the church uh, from the outside looking in, by all appearances, appear to have fellowship with the church, with their brothers and sisters. One might even presume they have fellowship with God. But John says, here's a historical example of real men and women in the church, but not of the church. Claiming fellowship with the Father, but not actually having fellowship with the Father. They didn't know him. Right? The only way to know the Father is through faith in his Son. And these individuals were denying the Son. And so the point is simple. These false teachers were, were never Christians. Now again, John has been describing a historical event, one that took place, I think, at the church in Ephesus where we have every reason to believe John spent a good portion of his ministry. Antichrists, false teachers, tried to convince believers that they didn't need a Savior who is fully God and fully man, 
And if they had won, right, if, they, if they had won, if those false teachers had won, if those antichrists had won, well, that church would have lost the gospel. And on that block of that community in Ephesus, a church that once was an open door to salvation because it taught the, the only message that saves, that church, regardless of what it said on the sign, would have been shut down. It wouldn't have been a church anymore. It would have been a place where you could learn how to go to hell, but not a place where you could learn how to go to heaven. But thankfully, the false teachers are the ones who left, and the doors of that church stayed open. All right. That's ancient history. But we don't have 1 John simply for ancient history, for history lessons. We, you see, are still living in the final days. If it was the last hour when John wrote these words, well, certainly... It's the last hour today, maybe the last few minutes of the, the last hour. And we're to be on guard against teaching that comes from those who claim to be Christians, but who don't really know Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They don't want to give you a message of everlasting life. They want to take something from you. They want to devour you. They simply want your attention. They don't want your good. A few chapters later in Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus said, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect the chosen ones of God. It's not that the elect can finally be led away, but the point is, Jesus said, they're going to aim for you. They're going to aim for those within the church. Right? That's, that's their target. You're the bullseye. Jesus predicted religious leaders attacking congregations. Paul preached, of course, a similar message in 1 Timothy 4.1 when he wrote, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. Now, what is more demonic than presenting a Christ who cannot save? That is the teaching of demons. And, and Paul is describing, whether he intends to or not, he's describing what took place in Ephesus. So, brothers and sisters... Jesus Christ is the world's only hope of salvation. I don't know how to put it any more simply. It is their only hope. Regardless of what happens to this world and to all the buildings and all the mountains and all the trees and everything that's going on today, this world's only hope is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that very simple reality, you don't have to have a PhD in anything to know that. Because the gospel is this world's only hope, the enemy, the evil one, will do anything he can to squelch and pervert this gospel. Now, how does this happen? Let me give you a few ways. It happens when preachers lead you to believe Jesus died to make your current life better, to make you more comfortable. Some even argue that faith in Christ will lead to greater wealth or physical healing. This is the prosperity gospel movement. It is in Atlanta. It is from America. And we export it all over the world in the name of Jesus. And it is nothing more than a denial of Christ. It happens when preachers lead you to believe that Jesus died to make our nation more just or equitable or even more moral. We should aim for justice. We should strive for Christian values at every level of society. But Jesus did not die to make America better. He died to free sinners from slavery to sin and to make Jesus the Savior of our nation or any nation and not the Savior of sinners is a denial of Christ. 
It happens when preachers are ashamed of the gospel. I'm thinking of a pastor who led a large crowd in prayer only to leave out the name of Jesus and pray instead in the name of our collective faith. But even as we criticize that man, or at least as I criticize publicly, how many of us have failed to speak of Jesus when we had the opportunity? To live in shame of the gospel is a denial of Christ. It happens when preachers assume the gospel. A pastor may assume you know the gospel story. He may assume you already know Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. You already know that. You learned that in Sunday school. And so he stops preaching that message. And he looks for topics that really interest you. He teaches on singleness or parenting, the workplace or marriage and so on. And with the best of intentions, he's turned Jesus into the savior of the better you. And this is a denial of Christ. And pastors, we bear the brunt of this responsibility. We will give a greater account as those charged to handle the word of God. But we are all to blame. Paul spoke in 2 Timothy 4.3 of congregations who will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I don't know if there's a part of you that connects the size of a church with its health or doctrinal fidelity or faithfulness, but you shouldn't. I'm thankful that there are many large and growing churches that have the gospel, but you do know that there are many large and growing institutions that call themselves churches, but really are not churches. Because in some form or fashion, they're denying Christ with the way they are twisting, perverting, minimizing, or ignoring the gospel. And my, my fundamental issue is not with their, with their motives. They may have the best of motives, the best of intentions, but the devil is sneaky. He's wily. He's cunning. And if it takes him three generations to remove a gospel presence from a city, all he has is time. He knows that in the end he loses. So he will spend all of our lifetime carving out and cutting up our churches from the inside without us even knowing it. Brothers and sisters, I know our nation has serious problems. I don't want to deny that. I don't want to belittle that. These problems aren't just in D.C. I know that you are facing them in your schools, in your workplaces, with each passing day. Many of you feel like strangers in a strange land. Every day you sense your faith is under attack, and it's not like a spidey sense. I mean, in many places it really is under attack. It's under attack from the world. But I want you to be aware of another attack, an attack that honestly I think is even greater and more potent. It's the attack from within. An attack from those who claim to be Christians but are not protecting or preserving or proclaiming the gospel. Now, what does all that mean for us? That really takes us to our next two points, but here's point number two, second. The church doesn't need to fear. Right, look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also." After describing who went away, notice what John says about those who stayed. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You all have knowledge. Look at verse 27. John puts it in even stronger terms. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no 
need that anyone should teach you. John says we already have knowledge, verse 21. He says you don't need to be taught, verse 27. Like half of you want to leave. I don't need to be taught. I can leave right now. Well, he clearly means something slightly differently because he's teaching them, right? They're being instructed as they're reading the letter. So this can't mean they don't need instruction. So what does it mean? Well, this language about them having knowledge and about not needing to be taught is simply a way of saying they already know the Lord. He's writing to individuals who already and genuinely have a relationship with God. This is, this is new covenant language. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, you could be part of Israel, but not truly part of Israel. You could be part of the people of God without actually knowing God. And the New Covenant is different. Now you, you can't be part of the people of God, not, not really, unless you truly know God. Unless you know Him in your heart. And this is what Jeremiah the Old Testament prophet said in Jeremiah 31, 33, listen carefully to the language because I think it helps us understand what John is doing here. Jeremiah prophesies, speaking for the Lord, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. They shall all know me. We, we, we won't need to be taught to know God. We'll know God. You see what John is doing? After the church split, he's simply encouraging those who stayed. D don't worry, he's saying. Don't be afraid. You know the Lord. You've been anointed by the Holy One, by Jesus himself who sent the Spirit into you, to dwell in you, to abide in you, you are holding tightly to this gospel because God is holding tightly to you. Be encouraged. You don't need to be afraid. Many of us are, are from divorced families. I, I am. Divorce is hard. Whether you're the parent or the kid, it can lead you to wonder if, if you did something wrong, if you could have done something differently. Well, the church that John is writing to here had recently undergone a difficult, ugly, but necessary divorce. And what they endured was painful. The church is a family, right? The, the, these are individuals that they broke bread with, that they prayed with. It's the first century, maybe before this church split. These were individuals that they actually endured persecution with. And those who stayed... Watching this church split. Watching their, their friends go. Now being told that they're not brothers or sisters, not really. They may have said, was this really necessary? Some may have said, well, how do I know that I have the truth? How do I know that I'm in the right and they're not in the right? And John, being the wise and tender shepherd that he is, he puts his arm around their shoulder and he says, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to be encouraged. You know the truth. You know Jesus and you know what he's done. And you don't know this because you're great. You don't know this because you have some secret knowledge. You know this, you know this because God's spirit came upon you. You're anointed. Don't be afraid, he says. You're a Christian. And this is why you know the truth. Now, what I'm about to say is not intuitive. It's not, what I'm about to say is not common sense. It goes against everything you will hear most everywhere else except in a faithful church. It is the clear teaching of the Bible, and it's the point John is making, and so it's the point I must make. Here it is. Saving knowledge, the knowledge that makes you a Christian, saving knowledge is not something earned. It's something given. It's not knowledge you find. It's knowledge that finds you. That is to say, it isn't the result of careful study, of countless evenings in family worship, of Sunday school lessons, even of sermons. True saving knowledge is the result of the Holy Spirit filling you in such a way that it can be said of you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, 
you have all knowledge, you no longer need to be taught. It's an anointing that comes from Christ himself. Yes, you need to hear God's word. Yes, you need to devote yourself to Bible study. Yes, you need to meditate on Scripture and memorize it and apply it to your mind. All this is good. All of this is commended. At times it's even commanded. But listen carefully. The truth of the Bible does not become truth to you until God's Spirit makes it truth to you. Jesus on the page does not become Jesus in the heart until God's Spirit fills you. Until God opens your mind and fills you with his spirit, you will never believe the truth of the gospel. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter after the disciple proclaimed, you are the Christ, not knowing exactly what he was saying, but nonetheless speaking better than he truly believed. But Jesus said, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... How did Peter know to claim that Jesus is the Christ? Was it because he was one of Jesus' closest disciples? Was it because he was strong in the faith? No, it's because the Father chose, according to his sovereign pleasure, to reveal that to him. That's what Jesus says. And isn't, Christian, isn't that your experience? Did any of you study yourselves into the kingdom of God? Now, believe me, we are a study-friendly church. We're a book-loving church. We give away books, except on Sunday nights when we don't meet. But come back a week from tonight. Raise your hand. We'll give you a book. But were any of you read into the kingdom of God? Looking back, can you say it was, it was because of your careful study, your acumen, your wisdom that, that you were saved? We're looking back and you say, it really was God who opened the eyes of your heart so you could see him as he really is. Our confidence is never, 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 never in our ability to think well or reason well or even our ability to live a holy life. Our confidence is in God. We were deaf. God made us hear. We were blind. God made us see. We were mute. God made us to speak. And those who were left here, in this church, they were left in that church. They stayed because God, the Son, anointed them with God, the Spirit, that they might know and profess and hold on to the truth. We know the truth because the truth has set us free. Mount Vernon, let us therefore be the humblest people on the planet. Our knowledge of God, our love for truth, our clarity on the gospel is not something we've earned, but something that God has given. It's God's grace. What do you have that you did not receive? Christian, you don't need to be afraid. I know that that first point was heavy, and I really didn't want to do anything to take away from the heaviness of it. It's, it's heavy to to be in the world today, it's heavy to recognize that really the, the local church is really a, a bullseye for Satan. I mean, that's a heavy reality. But listen to John. You don't need to be afraid. Not because you've found the secret, but because the Savior has found you. It's been a hard year. I know there's a lot of division out there. We're still in the thick of it. But be encouraged. God has opened your eyes. He's filled you with his spirit. As I like to say, that means your biggest problem is behind you. Now, does this mean we can take it easy, put our feet up, and drink daiquiris on a sandy beach? That takes us to our third and final point. Third, I've, I've lost some of you for the rest of the morning. Third, the church does need to abide the church does need to abide. Look at verse 24. And as I, as I read again, pay attention to the word that John so often uses, the word abide. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, John masterfully both encourages and challenges his readers. There is a tension in the Christian life. A tension, if you're a Christian, you've inevitably felt more than once. It's a tension we find here. On one hand, the readers are, are these, these Christian readers, well, they're Christian. <laughs> they're anointed. Uh, therefore, they know that God will protect and preserve their faith. They have no reason to be afraid, right? On the other hand, they have work to do. They must persevere in that faith. They must prove with their lives that they are not just in the church but of the church. Now, that's clear, I think, in verse 29. In verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Right? Practicing righteousness does not make you born of God. You're not born again because you did or practiced righteousness. John is simply saying that one way to know that you are God's child is if you practice righteousness. Right? Those who are really saved are the ones who happily identify Jesus as the righteous one, the holy one of God, and out of love for him, they want to walk in the light. They want to walk with holiness. Not fundamentally because they have to, though they do have to, but because they can, because they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and then they are now able to do that. They, they live out the knowledge of God. Verse 29, I think, harkens back to 1 John 1, uh, 1, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, this really isn't strange at all. Um, we see this in families. Being a son or a daughter in a particular family comes with particular rules and obligations. We tell our kids to be a menikoff requires following our rules. And our rules may not match the rules of other families. And following those rules doesn't make my kids my kids. They are my kids. But as my kids, they need to obey menikoff rules. Well, I want to talk about God's rule, about God's command that we abide, that we abide we must make sure the, the gospel of Christ abides in us. And we must make sure that we abide in the Christ of the gospel. We must do that. Verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. God's word. This truth about Jesus, which they heard from the very beginning of their Christian lives. This truth abiding in them, this truth abiding in you, is evidence that you are, in fact, abiding in Christ. Again, verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. Look at the second half of verse 27. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. You've already been anointed, he says. You, you have the Holy Spirit. Right? That's God's work. That's the, the praise of his glorious grace. Now, dear believer, now children, now little children, he says it endearingly, he says, abide in him. Verse 28, and now little children, abide in him. So we're to, we, we are to make sure that God's word is abiding in us and we're to abide in him. Reminds me of Jesus' own words in John 15, 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word 
abide, and my words abide in you, he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is the, this is a, a holy life. This is a godly life. This is a God-honoring life. God's word abiding in you and you abiding in God. What does this look like? What does it mean? To abide simply means to remain, to dwell, to stay. The false teachers, the antichrists, did not do this. They fled because they couldn't abide the teaching of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. That was too scandalous an idea for them to hold. They could not tolerate the idea that God in the flesh died at Calvary. And so even though that was the clear teaching of Jesus himself, they let go of that truth. They refused to rest in that truth, to dwell in it, to stay in it, to hold fast to it. So to abide in our context here in 1 John chapter 2, to abide is to remain committed to sound doctrine, to sound teaching, especially the sound teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. I love that word abide because it, it communicates a sense of nearness and intimacy. It's like Christ is in us, become part of us. In Jeremiah 15, 16, the prophet says to the Lord, Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, your words were found and I ate them. He's speaking to God. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Does that sound strange to you? Just like you might delight in a steak or an apple or a crispy cream donut with chocolate and custard in the middle, it becomes part of you. You delight in it. Jeremiah delighted in God's truth. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When we sing truth, we're doing more than singing. The word is a part of us. We're, we're delighting in it. We are, we're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Right? We're, we're rejoicing in it. We're tasting it. We're delighting in it. When, when the word dwells in you richly, when it is valuable to you, you'd rather go without food and water than go without God's word. Does that make sense to you? Is that attractive to you? Abide in him. Hold fast to the gospel. Cling to the message of the Son of God incarnate. Crucified and raised for sinners. That message is to be on our minds. It's to be in our hearts. I had been in Atlanta for about a year when I entered into, for some reason, conversations with an assistant pastor in the area. And that assistant pastor at this church had been invited to give the Christmas Eve, you know, sermon net to whomever came on Christmas Eve. And um, all across the world, all across America, maybe especially in the Bible Belt, Christmas Eve is kind of a popular time to go to church. Well, the, the senior pastor of this particular congregation knew that and was quite aware that there would be people who, for most of the year, were not all that interested in the things of God who might suck it up and come and do the whole thing. Well, when the assistant pastor ran the message by the senior pastor, a message which went from the manger to the cross, the senior pastor said, I'd rather you not talk about the cross. I don't want them to hear tonight about the blood. I don't want them to hear, the, hear about the sacrifice. I want them to come back. If you're not coming to church for the message of a crucified and resurrected Savior, why are you coming? It's grisly, but it's all we got. And it's all we need. And to abide is to remain committed 
to not just speaking that, right? That's my job as, as, a, as a pastor. My job is now, obviously, you have evangelistic requirements and disciple-making requirements. But you understand it's my job to, to speak that, to talk about the blood. You know, not going to win me friends at cocktail parties. Let me tell you about the blood of Jesus. You know, let me go find a cracker, they say. That's my job. What's your job? To want to hear it. And to be aware when you go somewhere and it's not being taught. Right? So as long as I'm here, we're going to be talking about the blood. And I think I can say that about all of our elders. But you may not be here forever. You may find another church one day. Do you know what to look for? If it is perverting, squelching, misusing, misapplying, even ignoring the gospel of Jesus Christ, even by way of assuming it, it's not the place you're to be. It's not a congregation abiding in Christ. This is the message of Christianity, and it's not up for debate. We are born rebels, enemies of God, in love with the world. We are born sinful, and because of that sin, we deserve both death and everlasting punishment. God is holy. His judgment is good. It's what we all rightly deserve. But God is love, and in his love, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world. The God-man Jesus, fairest Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life perfectly obeying his heavenly father. He did not deserve to die. And yet because he is God from first to last, he was able to die in the place of sinners like you and me for everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. Right? That, what I just gave you in, what was that, 20 seconds, that is what the antichrists denied. I began this message expressing concern about our country, I am concerned. I'm concerned about its direction, about its values, about the vitriol I see all around us. But I am even more concerned about the church. I am concerned about antichrists who would rise up and twist and diminish and ignore and assume this gospel. But I'm so hopeful. I know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I know individual churches might shut down. But the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. We will abide. But abiding is hard work. Abiding requires the hard and daily work of opening up the Bible and submitting to what it says. Abiding requires the hard work of gathering with the saints and hearing the word of God taught and preached. Abiding requires the hard work of taking what we hear and testing it by the word of God itself. Abiding requires the hard work of praying. You would love the Bible, the gospel, and everything it has to say about Jesus. Jesse Brannon, you are about to take on the full-time work of shepherding the flock of Emmanuel Church of Fujera. I know that you have been their pastor for many months now, but you're about to take on the full-time work of pastoring that flock. And your role as her pastor will test you in every way imaginable. And you will be more, you are a humble, godly, transparent man, and yet you will be even more aware of your weaknesses than you have ever been in just a few weeks. But I pray that as you leave us, you'll remember these three things. First, remember the church is under attack. Be on the lookout for antichrists, as dramatic as that may sound to 21st century ears. The evil one does not want your church to survive, and he can attack it from the inside as easily as he can attack it from the outside. The world will tell you that religious persecution is the greatest threat to Emmanuel Church of Fujera and a, a culture and a country that doesn't want its people to have the freedom to share the gospel. But the Bible and church history tell us that the greatest threat to Emmanuel Church of Fujera is not from without, but from within. The church is under attack. 
believed Jesus when he warned the church would come under attack. Be ready and on guard. Second, Jesse, your own sermon. Remember, the church doesn't need to be afraid and you don't need to be afraid. I don't know that I've seen you afraid, but I want you to know that you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear, brother. You have the spirit. The faithful saints that you are shepherding have been anointed by the Holy One too. There will be days when you are overwhelmed when people leave. And like, like when people leave me, like they're going like one of like, you know, a thousand churches. Like if they leave you, you're the only game in town. How discouraging is that? The battle is going to be wearying. And you wonder if you're doing any good. And it's on those days. It's on those days when you need to remember the good news that Jesus is your Savior. And that you need a Savior just as much as your flock does. And that he's filled you with, your, with his spirit. And so what can man do to you? Third and finally, Jesse, remember the church must abide. And you must abide. And Delane, you must abide. Their pastor must model abiding in Christ. You don't need to be the best preacher. You don't need to be the most tender shepherd. You don't need to be the wisest biblical counselor. You don't need to have a ton of strategic acumen on how to plant a gospel outpost in the Middle East. You need to abide. You need to abide. You need to lead your church to abide. They must hold fast to sound doctrine. They must preach a crucified and risen Savior. Don't veer from this truth or we will stop supporting you. Our prayer, you know, we're going to say this in a moment, Delane. We're going to have you, we know, for a few more weeks and as Jesse goes and leads the way. But really our prayer for, for both of you and, and even for your children as they get older is that you would eat God's word and that it would be a joy and a delight as you, Jesse, lead God's people in the hot desert of the Middle East. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that you are our God and there is no other. Father, it's been a heavy message, especially when we look around and we think, well, we've got the gospel. We've got good teaching. We've got sound doctrine. And yet, Lord, here we are in 1 John chapter 2 being told by Jesus and by Paul and by John that this is the last hour and that antichrists have come and that antichrists will come. And we don't think we're letting down our guard and we don't 100% know what it looks like not to let down our guard. But we simply want to be faithful to speak about the broken body and the blood of Christ spilled for sinners like us. And so we ask for your wisdom and your strength and your guidance. Lord, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We pray with John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. But should Jesus tarry? And should we all be physically dead before he comes back, would you preserve this gospel outpost in Sandy Springs that our children and our children's children and our children's children's children, spiritually speaking, would profess Jesus is the Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.